0: Established in 2002, Hotwire Coffee is located in a charming 1910 building in the heart of West Seattle, offering unique coffee drinks using locally roasted seven coffee roasters, high quality teas from B. Fuller's, Motor, and Pestle, and locally made burritos from El Bujo. Locally owned, community operated, laid back ambiance, covered patio with seating and dog friendly. Use the code doctor and the DJ and get 20% off any sized espresso beverage.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit, take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone.
0: Amy, our guest uh, later today, I'm really excited about talking to Jolene Hughes, who's also Kayleen Winters. She's got a fake name as well, pen name, some would say. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to talk about all her different careers. She has a lot of them. And it's kinda of awesome. So you want to stay tuned for that. It made me think about our jobs in the past. You and I don't talk a ton about past jobs. And I've been working in my current job for a hundred years as a DJ. But um I was wondering, have you been have you been fired before from a job?
1: Yes, I have been fired from a job.
0: Yeah. What happened?
1: Um <laughs> It's very funny. I was fired for uh, sending porn or receiving porn over the internet. <laughs> You're welcome. Bravo. You're welcome.
0: Bravo, Amy. <laughs> now let's hear the story because this was a while ago, this right? This was
1: a while ago. Because now
0: you wouldn't send that over the internet. You just look at it at the internet. The yeah. Internet.
1: Let me give you some context. I had just returned from spending a year in Thailand teaching English and teaching piano lessons to the children of government officials. Anyway, interesting job there. And, you know, it was like a year since my sister was murdered. And I had come back to Seattle and uh, I started a job in a grocery store I had worked at and a bar I had worked at. But things didn't go so well with those two jobs upon returning. I think it was also my state of mind. It was just just a hard time. So I ended up working a temp job in Seattle and I had started seeing somebody new and I was working a temp job where, um, I had a new job basically every week, you know, like you, you take the typing test and you tell them how fast you can type and you end up in all these different jobs. So I was in a job for one week, it was like data entry or something and, um, I checked my email And in my email, the guy I was seeing at the time had sent me an e-card. Remember e-cards before we had like (laughs) social media and memes and all this stuff? Yeah, It was an e-card and the e-card was this, um, photo of a 1940s styled woman in lingerie, which is basically covering her whole body because it's 1940s and she was holding an eggplant. (laughs) That was the e-card
0: back in the forties, man.
1: And the um <laughs> and the email said, Hey, don't you wish you were her doing this right now instead of doing data entry. Doing what? The eggplant? Yeah. Oh you know like the eggplant emoji. This is how far oh, right, technologies okay. come, Got right? It. Eggplant emoji. You know what eggplant emoji means. Come on, give me a break. So I replied, Well, of course, of course that's what I would rather be doing right now than data entry. That was it. That's the extent of my internet porn. Well, I mean, not in my entire life, but I mean in that instance. Yeah, at work. At work. So I went about my business, like didn't even really think about it ever again. The next week I went to another temp job. This time I was filing things and I was like in a closet filing things. And it was like right out of a movie where people get arrested or, you know, they go find somebody at work and arrest them. These two supervisors come like hunt me down in this closet. And they're like, we need to talk to you right now. And I was like, oh, okay. And they bring me in the office and they sit me down. And they said, we are going to have to let you go. You need to get your things right now. And I, th- I, we are so disappointed. We can't even believe this story. And I said, what? what are you talking about? And they said, oh, you know what we're talking about. I had no idea what they were talking about. And they said, well, I said, well, I got to, can I call the agency or like, figure it out. And they were like, yeah, here. And so I called the agency and she said, we couldn't figure it out. We were scratching our heads. We thought maybe you're doing research. And then we looked into it and no, you're sending smut over the internet. I was sending smut over the internet. Those words were spoken to me. And so I had lost my job at the temp agency. Like I was such a bad were, example, apparently.
0: Yes, looking at your 1940 e-cards with eggplants. Yeah. Sent to you. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's why I got fired for internet porn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's better than my story. I I I've been fired, I think just once. I think one time. Yeah. I, I well, I had this job at I'll just say at Urban Outfitters. That's the worst job I've ever had. It really was. Mm-hmm. And I had it, I worked in this restaurant for a bunch of years and I worked at Urban Outfitters. And it just was miserable. They just treated people pretty badly when I was there. And, you know, I'd be, I was in the women's uh, section, mostly just folding panties and, you know, just, just totally out of did my element. Did you get element. fired for that? No, I did a really did good someone, job. Did I someone just, say, you've hey, seen me do the laundry. would you
1: rather be like, you know?
0: No, you've seen me fold clothes. This yeah, is, you can true. see my skill level. So anyways, and you'd want to work the till so you didn't have to sit there and fold all day. My till was off by a dollar, and a dollar 12 or something. And so when they called me on it, I just said, really? They said, yeah, you can't do the till anymore. You're on probation with your job. I said, really? And I'll just get the twelve and give it to you. If I was going to steal, I would have stole a lot more money. they are like, you've been thinking about stealing? I'm like, oh my God, that's it. And I rush out of the Urban Outfitters and go right through the emergency exit in a huff and set the entire thing off. So I think I quit and wasn't fired. I just never returned there. But then I would needed money. And so I got this job through a friend of a friend at this little boutique. I don't even know. It was like her artwork. She'd opened it downtown Seattle, like right on the bus line, like right on First Avenue, back in the day when it was even more sketch than it is now. And she was selling her own art, like these faces and things.
1: Cool, good for her.
0: Yeah, sure. Except no one wanted these. So Aww. I was just, I know, I was sitting there all day. It was more of a, she had a she had some money. And so it was sort of a vanity project. But whatever, you're selling your art. So I'm there it's not going well. She's sort of dictating what we can play in there. I've listened to that. I love Portishead, but to this day, the Dummy album, I get shivers whenever I hear it or play. Well, because
1: it. it was always. Playing. Oh my
0: god, twenty-four hours a day, Portishead's Dummy. Well,
1: at least you got music.
0: So yeah, that's true.
1: In my data entry jobs, I didn't get music.
0: Well, I got out of Urban Outfitters, and there was five CDs they played my entire stint at that place. So mm-hmm. then I go to this place, and this was just when I started DJing. By the way, I was doing an overnight shift, so I, was mm-hmm. t- I needed to support myself. So it's uh, I'm I'm not loving my job. Um, but then October 8, 1995 happened. Big day, as you know.
1: I, I don't know. But <laughs> it, I, I've heard you tell this story before. It has something to do with baseball. It was
0: the uh, Game 5 of the American League Division Series. And it's known as the Double in Seattle. It's the most famous play ever. But I didn't know that going into it. My brother just said, do you want to go to the Mariners game? And what we would do is go down to the kingdom. Back in the day, old school, for everybody to remember the kingdom, And you'd wait till the second inning and pay very little money for a ticket. And w- the seats were so bad, I couldn't see Jay Buhner, the right fielder. I couldn't even see him. Like, the sight lines were so bad. So we go in there, we pay our whatever dollars, get our King beer, and, mm-hmm. and, and watch the game. We didn't realize we were at the greatest—there's not a lot of great Mariner game—but— The greatest Mariners game to ever take place is what we wandered into. It's known as the double. Edgar Edgar Martinez in game five, trailing by one run in the bottom half of the 11th inning. Bottom of the 11th on the most magical season, Amy. This season saved the Mariners from leaving town because they were just... Done. Like they just weren't good and the city didn't care and the people didn't care and they were on their way out. But that was such a, that's one of those magical sports season I've ever witnessed. So trailing by one run, bottom of the half, 11th inning, Joey Cora on third, Ken Griffey on first, Edgar Martinez hits a double, drives in Cora and Griffey, giving them the 6-5 victory to clinch the series over the New York Yankees 3-2. to It's considered the biggest in franchise history for so many reasons. I and went, that
1: was 1995. Yeah. So that's how well the Mariners are doing. Yeah, they haven't
0: had a, as good a game since. <laughs> <sense>. Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's
0: true. Good point, Amy.
1: I was like, wow, that was that was 100 years ago. Well,
0: here's the problem. To get to that game, I put a sign on the little boutique, and I just said, going to the Mariners game, <laughs> going to close a little early. <laughs> and I'm talking two or three hours early. It wasn't it Five was a little early. Well, after a few King beers... And I've lost my voice because I've watched the greatest moment in Mariner's history. My brother and I like, fuck this, let's go back home. And we went, because we were living together at the time, we are roommates. And we went home, you know, and just had the best night of our life. Just the best. Next day, I get a phone call. Yeah, I just got to the uh, the boutique, John. I see a note on the door that you are leaving early for the Mariner's game. Looks like you didn't show back up. I said, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm fired, aren't I? I said, yeah. I said, you know what, though? It's totally worth it. What a great fucking game.
2: Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and DJ.
0: Doctor and the DJ song. That's actually Michael Lerner, also known as Telekinesis. We're going to be featuring his music, not just his theme song, but his music throughout the podcast. Plus, we're going to give you a full-length song at the end of this for you to enjoy. Really excited about that. We're also going to be talking to Jolene Hughes, who's a lawyer. She was very busy in the 1980s and 1990s music scene here in Seattle, like the peak of the music scene here. She was a promoter and knew all those bands back in the day. And she happens to be an erotic novelist as well. Can't wait for that conversation. That will lead to talking with my uh, my wife doctor about masturbation and that there's something for everyone when it comes to getting off. We also will be talking about getting fired, uh, which has nothing to do with getting off, except I guess getting laid off. <laughs> About careers. And clearly, my career is a front desk boutique. I don't even know what that job was. Isn't working? You're not a temp worker. So, you know, and I don't I don't work in retail clearly either. I wasn't good at it. But we talk about careers a lot on this podcast. Yours jumps up because you're a doctor now. You know, and we've had discussions about this. Our guest coming up went from uh like in the music scene, I don't want to give everything away, but deep in the music scene in Seattle, like, oh core late 80s, early 90s, and then goes on to be a lawyer, then goes on to be a tech lawyer, then goes on to be a rock and roll romantic novelist under a pen name. It's awesome. And it reminds me, and what we've talked about, that there's not one career path for everyone.
1: No, 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 no. And we've talked about this a little bit before about identity. Yeah. You know, that, you know, what's that song? Like birth... Birth, school, work, work death, death. Godfathers, 1988.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, title track. Oh, good call.
1: But you can go birth, you can't go, well, maybe you can go birth, death, birth, death. I certainly believe that maybe we have multiple lives, but you can go birth, school, work, school, work, different work, different school, work, you know, there's there's not a formula. And I think that um, that's probably the root cause of a lot of unhappiness in people and thinking that there's a formula and then something's wrong with them because they're not following the formula. And then when you figure it out that there's not a formula and you just can have multiple careers and you can do different things or you can have different achievements or goals or dreams and change your mind and different relationships too. And you figure that out. I think those are the happiest people.
0: I don't remember the, I I should have done some research on this because I've heard this. There's a line. It just is a, it's just like this accelerating line. just keeps going. Like you go along this line of birth, school, work, death. Basically you go to school, you go to college. We even in our generation, um, it was you, it was still, you go to college and, and people were starting to figure out, yeah, I should travel that. And I didn't, I wish I had, um, I hope our kids do. That's what I wish for them. Oh, you and I
1: travel. Well, these days. I just
0: mean right out of high school. Oh, yeah. This is the mm-hmm. perfect time not to go to fucking college when you have no idea, no idea what you're going to do. No clue. No, maybe a select few, but you go along this line. You have a career. You get your marriage. You have your kids. You have your midlife crisis. You retire. You die. Like that's basically the, the <laughs> plan. And that seems awful. And I think that's why you had so many midlife crises, So they call them it's just because you're just like, what the fuck have I done with my life? And, you know, when we grow up as kids, we're going to be a thing. Now, we tell our kids differently. Henry's going to be on the Sounders playing soccer and farming the land.
1: Yeah, Um, he said he wants to be a farmer, a professional soccer player, a rock star singer, and a YouTuber.
0: Which he could do all of those things, especially if he makes it in soccer, because then he can make some money. And fund these other projects. So get on it. <laughs> the other kid is going to be coding and like doing 3D modeling. and But that could be 10 different things. He could be making video games or interactive comics or whatever. You know, like there's so many jobs you could be doing from that. And um, I remember did there was tests in high school. I don't know if they still do this. Oh, yeah. I hope people are nodding right now saying, yeah, I took that stupid test. So you take this test to, to tell you what you are best suited for, what is your career going to be? Did you take that test?
1: Oh yeah. And you know what? I was even, some of the corporate jobs I've had, they make you take that test. Still really? Yeah.
0: About what you're going to be.
1: No, there's, there's, you know, and I, I'm blanking. Maybe we should have looked this up before we started hit record, but it doesn't matter. Um, y'all know what we're talking about. There's, there's many different ones, John. There's like, oh, did you use the whatever test or the whatever test? And, and it's not all for naught, right. Like it's not just about careers. Sometimes some of these psych tests kind of tell you what your strengths are, which I think, you know, can be helpful. So if you're putting a team together in like, you know, some job situation and you're looking for someone who has vision and is more about that. And you're looking for someone who's more about, you know, can figure out how to make things work, you know, and you someone who's more like about cohesion of the group and, you know, so there's like different personalities for sure.
0: Myers-Brig.
1: Oh yeah, Myers-Brig. Yeah. That's indicator. MBTI yeah. Yeah, or the yeah. career
0: aptitude test said used by high school guidance counselors. Yep. What was your career? What were you supposed to do?
1: I have no idea. I don't remember. No. No, I don't remember.
0: Me? Park but ranger.
1: You're supposed to be a park Pretty ranger? Pretty sure park ranger. Well, you like hiking and you like nature. Yeah, I, so that I makes think, sense. I think
0: that's a rad job. No question about it. But where you come up with park ranger, I feel like it was, we need you to go to the forest. You probably should not ever be in an office. And I think that's what it was. I think is that I just, I'm ADD and I probably should never be cooped up. So I I mean, I don't really want a career in park servicing, maybe for a summer or two. Yeah. But it to determine that from a test and not my life experience, my personality and everything else and just life experience. Like for me, my job is not school. There There's no, your job super school to get a doctor. Thank God. You don't want to learn on the job, you know, without any education. Whereas a DJ, it's been, or even a bar owner.
1: It's, it's more of a trade.
0: It's, it's a trade and yeah. it's experience. And when I'm hiring DJs, if I see you went to school for DJing, like, I don't know what school you went to, but this is definitely, this is definitely a check against you um, because it, you probably learned the wrong things. But if you're involved young and early and you're interning or you're, or you're getting involved with the station early or media, whatever, or even a musician, then you have my attention because it's a trait. Just like playing music, you can take lessons, but it's something you learn as you go. And I, I hope that we, I, I have no doubt our kids and other people's kids were teaching them that. But I'm just talking more about our adult friends who are listening right now. Like you became a doctor very later in your life. You know, my mom changed her career, she went from teacher to a uh, crime practitioner. She got her master's in criminology in her forties. I like it, like it sounds like, and then she fought crime. She had a partner, in they, but that isn't what she did. She she did crime prevention. She did it later in her life, and so for me, that was that was a model that you could go back to school, you could do what you really want to do because the first time it, it, she didn't really she had a nice time teaching, but but it isn't really her.
1: Well, and you know that's interesting that you said, and it wasn't really her. Like then she figured out who she was, yeah. and then she went on, and that's one arc. But you can do something and that is you. That's absolutely you. And that absolutely suits you. That's absolutely who you are. No regrets. Like, and then you can choose, but I'm now going to go do this, you know? So I don't want people to think like, you know, maybe I think there are plenty of people in their early careers who are suited for what they are doing and do know what they want to do and then choose to go do something else. And that's perfectly acceptable.
0: Yeah. You could love what you do. But you shouldn't also give up on that. Maybe later you may do something else or something on the side or something that just makes you happy. And if you have a stable job, it may help you do that.
1: Right. And, you know, we talk about this a lot, but regardless of what your plans are and regardless of what you're doing in your life, life still lifes you. And I think when life lifes you, and what I mean by that is like, you know someone drops dead <laughs> or uh you have a kid and you maybe have chosen to have that child but boy was not you know it was a lot more than you thought yeah. or um a parent dies or you know just something happens right and life continues to life you and so i think being able to roll with i don't want to say the punches cuz some of the things are awesome that happen but being able to roll and flex and bend and being able to um continue To like sort of trust yourself and dodge and weave or, you know, take bold steps to go do something completely different. And I think
0: people see people doing something different and think, okay, let's look at me. So if you were just following me and you listen to my show and then I open a bar, it's like, oh man, that guy, he just did the, you know, a lot of people's dream is to open a bar, right? If you had a day like mine today, it wouldn't be, but you know, still, still love owning the bar, but You would look at that and think, oh, this guy, you know, he he has a profession he loves and then he picked a thing. Dude, that was 10 years of thrash of, of a lot of it, me thinking I couldn't do it of questioning myself, or I don't know anything about this, or just continually questioning myself that this was a viable thing to do, wouldn't even allow myself down the path too far until I did. So when you see people making these bold choices or did something amazing, maybe they started a podcast. I had this idea for years that I wanted to do this podcast. I just couldn't find a co-host. That was a problem. I needed a (laughs) co-host.
1: Then you went on lockdown (laughs) with me.
0: That's right. Then I got Um, on the air with you. And, but at the same time, you know, sometimes it's right in front of your face, but it takes forever. So just keep that in mind. When you're looking out at the world and you see people doing other things, really know that in a lot of cases, there's a lot of thrash going in that, a lot of questioning yourself.
1: What's that saying? There's a Mark Twain saying that's it's something about um, it takes a lifetime to come up with an impromptu speech or something like that. I always think of my life is often a gradual than sudden you know, you have like thoughts spinning around in your head and then there's like a moment of alchemy, right? There's a moment where it all comes together and transforms. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, I've experienced that many times in my life where it's kind of like you have a thought or an idea that's kind of ping-ponging around in your mind. And then suddenly you're forced with a choice or a decision and you make that decision and you make that choice and then everything comes together. Just like, boom. I
0: I didn't find the quote, but he did say, find a job you enjoy doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. He also said the secret of getting ahead is to get started. So suddenly Mark Twain is inspiring at this conversation. And um, yeah, if you have that quote, just go to Dr. and the DJ and send us us an Instagram message and tell us what (laughs) it is or your favorite Mark Twain quote.
1: Um, But I want to get back to life-lifing you. Sure. So you know this story, but so something very interesting happened to me recently where Mm -hmm. I went out to lunch with a mentor of mine who uh, had retired and was a doctor who was was a big deal in my life, big mentor. And she and I still are in touch. And we went out to lunch not too long ago. And another I, I don't know if that I would say mentor, but another human being in my life when I was in medical school, I had learned had retired, And there wasn't the best positive feelings towards this person, but I did have this thought when they retired, like, oh, I really hope that they get some peace or like some rest because they were always kind of a stressed out, wound up person and uh, good for them. You know, like I kind of said, like almost like a little, you know, compassionate, like you know, I really hope she has a great retirement. I don't actually wish ill will on anyone. Right. But why this is relevant is because I went to lunch with this other mentor of mine and I said, Hey, I heard so-and-so retired. And she said, yeah, you know, I actually helped her pack. And I said, Oh, cause she's moving, you know, she was moving somewhere. And I said, wow. I said, you know, um, I really hope, you know, she has a great, you know, <laughs> retirement. And I said, I got to tell you a story, though, that, you know, I've kind of, that kind of was stuck on this. And that was that I was having a really hard time in medical school. And it was like my first or second year in medical school. And my friend Allie dropped dead. Like she had a brain aneurysm and dropped dead. And it was this bullshit insurance thing where they had detected the uh, aneurysm and then, you know, her insurance changed and then the, they couldn't line up the right. Surgeons that her insurance would cover, and while they were fucking around with all the admin work, she dropped it, and it was devastating. And and of course, it was inconvenient, right? Like it was right in the middle of midterms in medical school, and I was losing my shit. And so I went and knocked on the door of this human being who worked at the medical school, and I and I chose the wrong door. Like I should have probably gone downstairs to the counselor's, the therapist's door. But I I went to the administrator's door and I walked in the office and I set up a meeting and I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. I said, I don't know how I'm going to get through the rest of this quarter. My friend dropped dead and I'm really upset. And meanwhile, I'm also like trying to raise a family and and go to medical school. And she looked at me and she said, well, you need to buck up. You are in medical school. Life is going to still happen to you. And I was like, okay. And I got up and left and I like was sobbing and I was like, oh, I guess I have to buck up and go to medical school and just fucking deal with it. Right. At lunch with this mentor of mine, I told her this story and she said, well, you know what happened to her, right? I said, no, I don't know what happened to her. I said that same year, months before your friend died, her husband dropped dead. And so she, no one told her to buck up, but she did choose to buck up. And so you just I mean I guess the lesson is you just don't know what happens to people. You know, she projected her own frustration and stress of like not taking time or not, you know, going on leave or and she just put it on me, right? And but that was like very um that made an imprint on me. And then I thought I vowed though when I left medical school that I would never ever behave that way towards my life, or like towards any of my patients, and tell people to just buck up, right? You know that give people grace.
0: You probably thought when you went and saw her, like, why does this woman have this job? You're terrible at this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst. Well, that kind of makes me think. Getting back to the uh, the Myers Briggs whatever test, um, I had a school counselor who, I'm gonna be honest, sucked. It was bad. And kind of encouraged me to drop out of high school, which to me is a bad, bad strategy as a high school guidance counselor. And I've always resented him a little for that. And I used it as kind of revenge to graduate on time. Maybe some shit was going on. Maybe his kids had issues. Maybe he had issues. Maybe family members. Maybe something terrible happened. And we just don't know. And think about how long you hold on to that. So, you know, God, I've never even thought about that guy until he told that story. And I thought, why is he in this career. Maybe his career was great. I just caught him in the bad year, month, or week, or day.
1: Well, that's the point I'm making, is that I'm making, okay, I have two points I'm making. One is that regardless of what career you choose and what you do, how you are and who you are being in that role is really where it's at, right? That's really where it's at. And sometimes we think about skill sets in terms of what people do. But I think if we thought about skill sets in how people are being and how they respond to different situations might be more important. That's the first thing. The second thing that I'm pointing out is that at the end of the day, we all need to just trust ourselves. Like I walked out of that office and I was like, oh, this is bullshit. I knew it was, and yet I was sort of in this um, paradigm of medical school where I didn't make the rules, and so I did have to buck up a little, but then what I did do is I did go find the counselor. I did go find the therapist in the basement (laughs) of the building, and I did talk to her, and then then I did go see my guidance counselor, which is probably the other door I should have knocked on besides like one of the main administrator's doors. And I did come up with a program where it slowed down my trajectory, right? Like my graduation date, we slowed it down a little to give me a little breathing room. And so, and and I trusted myself. And so I guess that's that's the point I'm making. Yeah,
0: now you're a doctor who co-hosts a doctor and the DJ. The end. Well, there
1: was a road, If I could
2: have crossed, I would
1: I am so psyched for our guest today. Jolene Winther Hughes is the founder, principal, and fearless leader of Hughes Media Law. Prior to her career as a lawyer, she ran a successful artist management and production company during the height of the 1990s Seattle music scene. She is known as the rock and roll lawyer serving the entertainment industry and the host of her podcast, The Lawyer Who Rocks. Recently, Jolene took on another identity as a romance novelist under the pen name Kayleen Winters.
0: I feel like that last part comes out of nowhere for some people.
1: <laughs> I know, it does. Jolene, we're so psyched to have you on this podcast today, Jolene slash Kayleen Winters. <laughs> Thanks, Things
3: are having me. It's kind of fun to be on this side of the uh, fence for a change. Yeah, could you host
1: your own podcast, The I do. Lawyer Who Rocks
0: can you Can you just give a quick since we're on that podcast tip, like what that's all about? I mean, the title jumps out as what it's about, kind of like the doctor and the DJ, but what what is your podcast? About? <laughs>
3: Well, The Lawyer Who Rocks is a play on my background in rock music, just like um, You Need Lawyers Who Rock, which is our moniker for Hughes Media Law Group. Um, But it is really all about business badasses. So I try to focus on people who have and their journey from where they started to where they are now as business badasses. And it's everyone from restaurateurs to technology executives to um, startup entrepreneurs to people in the arts. So it's, you know, it's really all about just being a badass in your business, whatever your business choice is. And I've had had some great guests. It's been really fun.
1: That's awesome. You need to extend that to some of us doctors, you know, I'm like a doctor entrepreneur. And I'll tell you one thing, like, it's really hard for them to run their own (laughs) business.
3: I do do that. I actually one of my friends from back when I was working in music, she went on to, become a naturopath and so she right now is in LA as a concierge naturopathic doctor to rock and roll stars and she's actually was the doctor on the mayhem tour so she's been one of my guests so yeah I mean we need to you guys need to be on too
1: (laughs) (laughs) awesome um Jolene you know why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with the music scene in Seattle are you from Seattle or did you move here? And just kind of tell us like that whole piece of your past.
3: Sure. Yeah. I'm native actually to Washington. I was born in Spokane. Um, my parents, we moved to Federal Way for a little while. and Then I, they settled us down in Puyallup. And so I really spent most of my school years in Puyallup and Puyallup at the time was kind of an interesting place to grow up. I was very into music. I loved all music. I was passionate about music from a little girl. So it was a little bit more of a conservative town, a little bit more farm town. So a lot of country what wasn't my bag. So my friends and I would come up to Seattle to go to Scoochies, which was a dance club. And that's where I really discovered like new wave. This was in the eighties, new wave. And sort of a lot more alternative music. So I was one of those kids that really wanted to seek out music that no one had ever heard of. Um, So it was really a good timing because Seattle was having this, you know, music scene. When I got, I went to college at UW. So when I started college, I decided to put on shows at the dorms um, for bands I wanted to see. And that's really how I got my start as a promoter. And because Seattle has had a notorious bad history of access to all ages shows, Uh, I ended up meeting a lot of these people that have gone on to become pretty iconic figures in Seattle music, including Susan Silver, who I had one of her bands booked at one of the shows. And she asked if I wanted to work with her when I was done with school. Of course, it didn't pay anything because nobody made any money and she didn't even make money. She still had other jobs. And Susan Silver, for those that don't know, managed uh, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Screaming Trees um, before all of these bands were household names, um, but they were very lo- beloved in Seattle, and but we didn't think anything would ever happen in Seattle, like nobody would ever make it. 'Cause no one ever made it in Seattle but Hart, really, right? <laughs> and Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix from your- and Hart, yeah. Well, Queensreich. We had Queens too. But it wasn't like a it wasn't a given thing. So that's kind of how I got my start and it led into quite a few years of some amazing times during the Seattle music scene.
0: Yeah, you were in the thick of it. You you couldn't have had yeah. better timing. You know, you, when you were in it, you didn't know you were in it, correct? Mm-hmm. Like this was anyone who lives in Seattle now, this was an entirely different city. And it was looked at entirely differently, too. And bands didn't necessarily tour up here very much.
3: No, I mean, that. so that's another good example. Like why I put on concerts was because I wanted to get access. I remember when Adam Ant came through, that was like the big deal. I was one of the first new wave artists that was a big deal. I was really more of a rocker girl. Like, I loved Van Halen, and, you know, I would go to all the Def Leppard and Van Halen and Judas Priest shows. That was my thing. But um, as I got more and more into and expanding my horizons into music, I mean, it kind of dovetailed nicely with just the rock scene of, of Seattle with Alice and uh, Mother Love Bone and Soundgarden, obviously. You know, what's what's kind of a weird thing now looking back You know, all the bands and the different groups, and all the bands that everybody knows and loves, you know, some of them were everything very connected in certain ways. But there are also very faction music scenes, you know, like you wouldn't have seen Alice in Chains play with Nirvana like that would never happen back then. Right. Chris Novoselic and the guys from Alice, everybody's tight now. Back then it was, you know, everybody's, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. There's like idealism about music. I mean, the sub pop. Scene was very different than sort of the rock scene. And when I started booking Rock Candy, Rock Candy started, oh gosh, now I can't even remember if it was 90 or 91. I'm, um, it, it, there was, I have like this really funny postcard that was sent from one of the guys from My Honeywood, a side band that was chastising me for being corporate. Like Rock Candy was so corporate. <laughs> you know, we would never want to play there because it's so corporate. And how dare you <laughs> invite us to play there sort of thing. So I have all these cool little iconic things that I had from my time booking rock candy and just being in the scene that are just super ironic and funny now to look back on.
0: When you went, was there, um, was there a moment when, when you saw things changed? Like it, it became a big deal. Was there one moment or was it just like slowly boiling the lobster? Was it just, was it a slow burn or was there a show or a day or someone got signed or just something charted that just, for you, was like, wait a sec, this is something. Because that has to happen at some point for everybody.
3: Well, you know, getting signed is such a weird thing, right? You get signed, it doesn't mean anything. It, it means good, like, great, you get some money, you can go make a record. Yeah. But at the time, it didn't necessarily mean that that guaranteed success. All the bands got signed. Like, all the bands I was working with got signed. Some of the smaller bands that I was working with personally were getting scouted basically but the moment for me where i realized things are going to change as we know it because everybody all the guys in the bands when they weren't touring were working as waiters or bike messengers or yeah. you know they'd be everybody would be in the office like all the guys from pearl jam and Soundgarden and screaming trees it all we'd all just just sitting around in the office you know like doing fan mail and you know like it, it was it was it was like normal, like a startup, like bands are like startup. But the moment I realized it was when I went down to L.A., um, the Screaming Trees had friends that were in a band called King Crab. And they asked if I would shop the tape to see when I mean, they were tapes and cassette tapes, if I could shop their tape to see if someone might be interested in them. And so I had another band I was working with called Inflatable Soul, which was um, Chris Cornell's brother and sisters and their band. So I went down myself to LA and borrowed a friend's old 1980 Honda. That was a stick that I couldn't drive and stalled it on sunset all the way down to all my different appointments. Luckily, you know, when I worked with the management company, I could actually get in to, yeah. to present a tape, which was, you know, pretty cool. And I sat at DGC and um, the gal that I was pitching to was like, yeah, no, this is cool. Not for us. Have you heard this? Have you heard this yet? And she put on Smells Like Teen Spirit. And like, that's not how Nirvana really sounded in real life. Right. So I was like, wow, who's this? She's like, it's Nirvana. And I was like, oh, here we go. So that for me was the moment because I was like, Nirvana wasn't really known as a great live band or like even melodic per se, or even good on their instruments right so (laughs) it it was it was kind of cool it was just like wow this is amazing as a and then you know who knows a couple months later it was everywhere smells like teen spirit was everywhere and that really kind of opened the door even though nirvana wasn't probably the initial band that had spent years on the road like the screaming trees or Soundgarden, or even alice for that matter they were the ones that broke everything open for everybody else
0: when did um when did you actually start making, and uh, I'm going to use quote fingers, a living in music? Because I always, <laughs> like, I know when I made a living as a DJ, I, I can remember it. Like I had, I got to, like you were saying, all these other jobs is when I quit the coffee shop in the morning, the restaurant in the night, and then the DJing. And when I said to someone, when they asked what I do for a living, I remember the first time I, a- I answered it, oh, I'm a DJ. And they started laughing. They said, no, no, no. For money. What do you, <laughs> what do you do? And they couldn't quite fathom that you could make money in this business. So when was though? like, when was it your gig?
3: You know, I guess it depends on what you define as making a living, That's right? right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could barely yes. live on that money. Like I still had a student loan now that I think about it. So maybe it's a hybrid.
3: Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate not to have student loans. I went to undergrad and I, I, as I said, I worked as an RA. So I, my parents helped me with tuition, but I covered all my housing costs. So I left, it was a state school and I'm native. So it wasn't at the time that expensive. (laughs) Um, But that being said, I didn't end up having student loans, but I, you know, I had to pay rent and I had to pay, you know, I had a car and I had to drive to gigs. So I always had roommates. We lived in a house, and there's probably between three or four roommates. We all shared a house. There were months where all I made was four hundred dollars a month, and even back then, that was nothing. So it really depended on my hustle and me. I ended up booking a lot of bands, so I was able to kind of eke a living by. But I certainly wasn't living large, <laughs> and you know, and but I never thought about it. None
0: of us did. Like right. I lived well, just not large. You know, <laughs> that's very well said. Yeah. When you're in the moment, you're just, you can't believe you're living in this music world. Yeah. I mean,
3: but it was also just like, you know, like any time since it's like, you just have these people that you're around that are all like passionate about what they do and they're creatives. And so you're all just in it. And every day is sort of a new thing. There's just like the day-to-day stuff. There's new drama, but there was work, like we worked hard and, you know, we spent every waking hour, like when I was booking Rock Candy and I was managing bands and still working for the management office, I was working from 10 in the morning till 2 in the morning every single And I mean every single day. I was not partying. I was not out drinking. And I was like the fans were.
1: So in all this talk about how we make money or what we do for a living or how we define that, you know, just being entrepreneurs ourselves and Jolene, you being an entrepreneur and having your own podcast about business, what do you have to say about identity and how you define what you do for a living versus a hobby and how people identify themselves?
3: It's a really good question because, uh, you know, back when I was doing music. A lot of my friends had gone, you know, from college and whatnot, had gone on to do different things. I had a friend who was a teacher who bought a house. I had no concept of buying a house. I was happy when I could pay rent and have a little extra money to maybe go out to dinner or something. So for me, I think if you were to look at it in Shark Tank, sort of through a Shark Tank lens as an entrepreneur, probably 100% of the time that I was in music was a quote unquote hobby. Because it wasn't like I, you know, increased my ROI or I had, you know, I set a business plan and said, okay, this is how I'm gonna double my revenue. I mean, it was just really establishing a reputation as someone who has integrity or all of those things. So that was what I was doing. And weirdly enough, money for me has never been something that I obsess over. Like I am not someone that is like oh, I've got to make this much money, or if I don't do this, I've always had a pretty zen feeling about I will always have enough. I've never really felt that scared feeling, and maybe that's privilege, but I think that I also lived on, like I said, $400 a month. I lived within what I could do. So that is a hobby, right? But then now that I'm a business lawyer, it's been really interesting to sort of move those concepts together about how do you create what you want, how do you do something that is innovative and different and doesn't follow the mold, but can be something that changes the world. And I'm lucky that I was part of a music scene that did that. And then later on other things as well. So I'm pretty Zen about it all. It's not calculated in any way.
1: You know, um, it's, it's interesting. And I'll just talk about my, I'm going to talk about myself for a second. Yeah. We like that (laughs) about my industry and how you know, a lot of doctors, it, it looks like time for money. Your doctor is this much an hour or a visit is this much. And I've really been reframing that to be, um, this is the service that I provide and this is how much it costs. And it's not necessarily linked to time. Time is just the parameters so that people know how to schedule themselves or I know how to schedule myself. But if I'm doing something super specialized, which I do a lot of in my practice, then it costs more than the less specialized things, regardless of the time. And having more of a Zen idea, and and that's not just in like my medical practice, but in my life. I love what you said about having sort of a Zen feeling about money and just really believing that you'll always have enough. And really what we do with our lives and our time can be all the things, right? It can be an and both. And I think what people get stuck in is that they have to be a thing or do a thing and have the money come in for that thing. And you can actually do lots of things. I own a bar, I'm a doctor, I, I don't know, I do all kinds of stuff that doesn't necessarily make me money, but makes me happy. It's sort of that balance.
3: Well, I feel the same way even about my law practice. I mean, when I became a lawyer, I was in house for a long time, but I hired all these different law firms to do different things. And when I started to really look into what the law firm business model is, it's all 0.6 time. It's all based in time and it's all, and how people are rewarded, how, how people associates who move on to become partners, how they even become partner, how they even get bonuses. Anything is all about how much they can bill, and the amount of hours that is expected of lawyers in law in almost every law firm I've ever known, there's no no work life balance at all. It's you know if you have to bill 1,900 hours, for every hour you bill as a lawyer, you can imagine it's probably 1.5 of either time. And that's not to say you're not supposed to bring in clients and do business development and do firm things and all this different stuff. And I was like, I don't want to be that person, which is why, and you know, on my law practice, that that's a whole other whole other
0: can of worms about that.
3: But I, I really wanted to change that in this profession as well, just like you in the medical profession.
0: Uh, with your kind of Zen-like approach and, and describing how you lived on $400. And I, I had heard a story recently about millennials really um, struggling because they can't buy a house or they're in their 20s and they don't they can't get a house. It turns out that all these people are going to school. They can't even afford meals and rent. And I thought, am I just out of touch, or did people just not ask me when I was going to college? Because <laughs> like I never imagined a house, and I couldn't afford food, and I had four roommates, and we just hustled. and And yep. I'm not trying to pit one generation against another. I'm just the way it's framed sounds like are we just now saying hey, maybe that maybe that's maybe that's too much of a struggle for people, or are they re- are they referencing that we didn't have that because everyone I know. Really, I think it went through kind of what I was going through, and that was piecing together your life and never imagining a house or a career. No, or, right? No,
3: I mean, and it's all proportional too. It's just like we talked about; minimum wage was three dollars. Right. Now it's whatever. So, but here's the thing, and this is I, I really fully believe this, and I know there's all sorts of woo-woo manifestation gratitude crap that's going all around. But I don't, in many ways, it's not crap. What I mean, Zen. That's probably really narrowly defining it, but it's just sort of this mindset. If you limit yourself with your mindset on anything, then you will live up to that. And so if you expand your mindset, you will live up to that. So if you walk around and lament that you will never be able to buy a house, you can damn well bet that you will never be able to buy a house. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to work really hard and Game the system, or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to frame it in your mind. I'm going to either work hard, or I'm going to get this job, and I, I want to buy a house. Well, you will buy a house.
0: Did you always have that philosophy, or or was there? Did you see it happening, and you figured out that was your philosophy?
3: You know, it's weird. Like I always did. I didn't have a name for it. It was just sort of this innate thing that I always had. Not in every aspect of my life, and not always all the time, right? Like I've had some severe challenges in life, like with different things, like everybody has. And times where you really question, like, am I doing the right thing? Is this, is, you know, is this the right thing for me? Like I'm not, you know, everybody has those, but somewhere deep inside, I've always just decided I'm going to do it and then I do it. And that, you know, then I think that's one thing. There are people that allow fear to say i can't do it i can't do it because i have to pay for college for my kids or i can't do this because i have to please my parents because they won't like it if i do this or something else whatever that sort of limitation is or perceived limitation is and you know again limitations are it's just a word
0: Mm -hmm. right so when did the when did the lawyering start to pop into your head or <laughs> that sounds like
3: well it's a good transition because yeah I mean I had a I don't know if it's traumatic but it was like when I was working uh, I was booking this club it was rock candy and there's a situation that happened with one of the owners and some of the people that were there were marijuana growing operation that was going on that I, and I didn't know about the other owner didn't know about and I love, you know, all these people are people that I worked with every day and I love them so much, but they got caught up before it was legal in Washington. And so really it affected the club because the perception was all this was happening at Rock Candy, which it wasn't. But even though we don't have social media back then, Dell whatever said is true. Um, so I actually didn't know what I was going to do because that was my source, real source of income. And I ended up really thinking about one of the bands that I really loved really believed in um, they got caught up with a sort of a business situation. I couldn't get them out of. And so with all of those things, I was like, do I really want to be doing this? Do I really want to hitch my wagon only to creative guys and girls who don't have that business sense. And I just felt like I was kind of at my limit of what I could do. So that's where Locke came in. I didn't know exactly. I, I, I actually applied for a couple other jobs. I had no idea what to do with me way too much experience to be like an entry level job not enough experience to sort of be in a mid-level job. So I was, you know, that was a a choice I made to have the career I did, but I didn't translate. So that's really what law was for me. It's my dad was a lawyer. I didn't tell anybody. I went and took the LSAT. I sort of wound down all my music stuff I was doing. I wanted just a job. So I went and worked at Bastyr University and I got into naturopathy and really just had a great year of working eight to five and, playing volleyball and setting for the LSAT. And that's all I did. <laughs> and, um, went in and got into, um, CLU, they had a night program
0: and that that's how I became a lawyer. You know, when, when bands would ask advice of me, like, well, what, what is our first step? And I said, you get a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then a manager, you yeah. know, but lawyer, yeah. <laughs> that's and get there's a not, lawyer
1: before you sign the agreement with your manager.
0: Even <laughs> years ago, there weren't a lot of, I sent, people to like one or two people there wasn't a lot of people looking out for the music industries when i'm trying to spit out so did you see that as a reason too that they they needed help
3: yeah i mean i think that originally when i went to law school my thought was i'll be an entertainment lawyer right um and i remember going into the career services and they said okay well here's your path to become an entertainment lawyer you gotta get be at the top of your class and then you have to go and work at one of the, you know, top three firms in Seattle and then you're going to have to do whatever they tell you to do. And then maybe you can go in entertainment law. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a path I want to do. Like that sounds awful. So I formed an entertainment sports law student club at the law school, entrepreneurial spirit. And then I thought, well, at least when I can call people up to come speak at our, our presentations, I have a title <laughs> and I'm at the law school. So I called Chuck Armstrong from the Mariners. He came and spoke. And so I started calling all these people that I never thought <laughs> would ever talk to me, but they did. And they got back to me and were psyched. And then the next thing you know, I had opportunities like, you know, do you want an internship here? And then a friend of mine was working at this company that she was like, Oh, it's kind of a cool company. they invented this weird technology that lets you listen to audio on the, on your computer. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. That seems kind of cool. Do they need an intern? (laughs) And so she she went and talked to him and they said, well, send her in. So right before I left, I said, I'm going to go into career services and get my work study packet because they're a startup. Maybe the state can help pay for my salary because I was on work study. So I went in and handed my future boss the packet and said, I think the state will cover 65% of my salary if that would be helpful to you guys as a startup. And I got an internship. And so I, that was Real Networks. And I was there for eight weeks that turned into a decade, basically. Wow. And my background and the experience in music really, I mean, I got immediately put on, like, as an intern, like a literally a second year law student, my first week. I'm, you know, can you do a deal with Paul McCartney or Prince or, you know, people that the company wanted to get? Audio samples up on the internet just for testing and just to show, and then look at where we are today.
0: <laughs> you were on the ground level. Of mu- Turns out music on the internet never took off, so lucky no, you, you no. know.
3: I don't know, there was no innovation <laughs> there,
0: <laughs> yeah. And you were again ground level in the Seattle music scene as well. But what I keep hearing there's a few things is sort of this bobbing and weaving. You keep running into an obstacle and immediately turn and go down this road, and then when this road says well, you have to work and compromise and work in this giant fucking firm and it's not going to be your thing. You bobbed and weaved again. And your history then in music totally comes in handy as you do what looks like a completely different career. But lo and behold, your time in that music where you were just, you know, living life and, and, and in this scene became part of your career there's so I'm, I'm there's so many lessons to be learned in your journey and we haven't even gotten to the uh <laughs> the lawyers uh who turns into a romantic novelist so um you know because that's the next chapter no pun intended but i i just i love people who just keep moving it just seems like you kept moving the entire time
3: you know it's true um and it's it was weird because when i when i think back on that i didn't i didn't really put it together till almost today but when I was having these, you know, interviews with companies that didn't know what to do with me, I mean, that was the moment where it's like, okay, well, here, here's where it comes in handy. And now, going to law school is sort of fortuitous because I didn't ever really want to just be a lawyer because I have all this business experience and I have a, you know, street smart experience in music. So it was really cool to work for a company and then. To have a great mentor, I had another, I've had two great female mentors, Susan Silver. I mentioned then Kelly Jo MacArthur was my boss at Real Networks. And they were not just mentors, but they let me be who I was. Maybe they saw that I had sort of that work ethic or whatnot. But I did. I really wanted to work hard. I wanted to learn everything. and I And I fought to get my own clients. And I ended up being the lawyer that supported the entire team that brought every type of entertainment-related content online. Music was first, but then we did video. Real Networks created video too. So streaming, audio, streaming, video were the first company that did any of it. Um, Radio, so why Mark Cuban is a shark is because he built this technology off of Real Broadcast Network, which was Real Networks. Um, So we had all these innovative technologies and I got to learn technology. So for me, that was the absolute revelation of how do you get a whole new world opened up to that music sort of brought us to. And then, you know, I, we put survivor on, you know, amazing race, like all those early reality shows, I did all those deals, you know, back in the day. And then in launching the first subscription service, the first video on demand service, I'd be the lawyer at a meeting with like a movie studio, like me and then 10 universal lawyers and two business people (laughs) to try to explain DRM to them back in the day. But I was trusted to go and get that deal done and be the lawyer to do that. So it was just really the bonds that I made with all the people and the business people that we're all creating this world that we now live in today. And all these executives have gone on to do such amazing things too after real. Um, but yeah, we, you know, I remember the day when Kelly Jo came into my office on a Friday at like three and said you need to go home and pack a suitcase because we're all on the five o'clock flight to New York because we're going to create the first legal music service. So we flew red eye to New York and spent five days, day and night, putting the first music service together. So I have all these really cool pockets of these experiences I had while at Real, and there's, I mean, I could rep, I could tell you hundreds of those. And that, those relationships are what enabled me when I decided to leave. And my, I owned a restaurant too. My husband and I owned a Irish pub for eleven years. When I made that, when we decided to do that, and I decided to leave Real Networks, those relationships that I created and all that work I've done enabled me to be able to start the law firm because they were all my clients.
1: Yeah, you're touching on what John and I consider one of our core values, which is that it, it's better to have. Um, experience and a skill set in many different areas of your life, rather than one. Because if you have one, then you're sort of blind to opportunity, or you're blind to a different way to do something. And when you bring in experience like from the music industry, or from, you know, wherever into lawyering, and you sort of twist those two things together... You can see things that other people can't see. And I think that as an entrepreneur, it's like a huge core value and skill set to have. You know, I worked in the music industry. I'm a musician. And then and then I became a doctor. And then I'm also building a business. And at one point, I was a realtor. And, you know, and all of those experiences, I can see like a different angle than, say, even somebody who had just been doing this one thing their whole life, they're not seeing outside of it. And I love your story because you're right there living proof of all this.
3: (laughs) Well, and you know, that's when I started my firm, it's like, what are the core values? I went through a couple iterations. I had a really bad breakup with a law partner that blindsided me, but all of those, all of those experiences, even the bad ones, like even the, you know, the negative ones, make you who you are. I mean, when we had the pub, we had this whole big thing about nightlife ordinances. And I don't know if you remember about the nightlife thing they were trying to do to all these small businesses. And like we got sucked into that somehow because a couple of neighbors on Alki didn't want any restaurants on Alki. So they like tried to loop us into all of that and that blindsided us. But going through all those, even though they're hard at the time, All of that makes you just a more well-rounded person generally, and I think more grounded and more calm. Um, But when I set the law firm up that I have now, Hughes Media Law Group, which is, you know, I'm really, really proud of because everybody that works for me in the firm or with me in the firm have been a business owner. Every lawyer that works with me Mm. has been a business lawyer. Because for me, what we're doing for our clients as general counsel, you know, we are in-house general counsel Overall, we do everything from corporate and financing and setup and um, strategy and operations and employment and all of those core operational getting your business setting up to all the cool strategy stuff, which is how are we going to create licensing? You know, it could be licensing and merchandising. If you're a gaming company, it could be, you know, just strategic agreements. If you're manufacturing products or whatever those things, that's the kind of the meat of the business to, you know, exit strategies, all of that, but everybody has been in business. So we can actually talk to our clients in a way that is not above like, Oh, we're lawyers telling you how it's got to be done. It's how do we collaborate with you to find out what is best for you? Because there's not one legal solution, just like there's not one business solution for any business.
1: You know, it brings me to to something else that I talk about a lot and I think about a lot is like evolution of human beings. (laughs) And, you know, it's in our evolution as a human being to be creative. And that's because we have to find solutions to survive, right? You had to invent the wheel. (laughs) And then you had to invent the tools. And you had to think of things that didn't exist in order to survive, and that's how we survive is by way of creativity, and then I think that the flip side of that, however, though, is that we can get, like, monkey mind and run into anxiety because our brain is thinking of all these scenarios and, like, not necessarily positive ones, but, you know, what I wanted to talk to you and sort of pivot the conversation to the romance novel because at some point your creative mind said... Hey, I'm going to use my brain to do this. And so what was that moment for you? What made you become a romance novelist?
3: Well, I've always done a lot of things at once. Like, you know, I had a a pub, a very, you know, busy, busy pub for 11 years while I, you know, had firms. So I've always had other stuff going on. When we sold the pub, I took some time off. But when we moved, my husband took time to build our house. So while we were doing that, I was curating all this stuff, boxes of crap that I had hauled around you know, for years. So I curated everything, including all my music stuff, and I got it organized. And I found boxes and boxes of notes and things from high school. I found this book that I had written when I was 15, and my two girlfriends and I wanted to marry rock stars. And it was the story of us and this band of guys that we were dating in high school. And it was something I typed every night, and I'd read it on my Snoopy phone to my two girlfriends. And um, I found the novel, and it wasn't bad. It was a fifteen-year-old's perspective. And bottom line is, my husband was like, "You read so many romance novels, and I've read—I read i read voraciously half for years. I can read super fast now. Since I've been a lawyer, even faster. So he was like, "Why don't you try it? Like it'd be fun." And there's this whole genre in contemporary romance of different things. There's firefighters, there's police, there's brothers who live in small town, there's cowboys, there's all these different tropes. And there is a huge group of people that write rock star romance. And I'd even read some of them and I'd be reading, I'd tell my husband, Gareth, I'd be like, gosh, there's this whole genre. It's really interesting. It's fun. Um, He goes, why don't you try it? So when I found this book, i talked to my two friends i sent them the book and i said should i do it and they both all of them were like do it so i just kind of did it at night like you know well he we'd be watching tv and i'd have my laptop out and i just started it and i really found that i loved it it was really hard the first you know, it took me a year over a year to write the first book and then i thought well how am I going to get this out? You know, I don't know how to self-publish. And so I just looked at all the different books that I really like. People that had really great covers or great. And I read articles about like how to do it. And I thought if I'm a media lawyer, I have this background in music, whatever uh, I put out there, I want it to be quality. I want it to be a great story. I want it to be well thought out. It's got to follow sort of what people expect in romance novels and have conflict and all this different stuff. So I just learned all of that taught myself some of that, and then really just absorbed everything that I'd read over the years. Got myself an editor, found a book cover designer, hired a marketing company just to sort of tell me I don't even know how to get something up on Amazon. And that's what I did. And so a year ago in April, I was supposed to do this photo shoot. And then the pandemic had obviously been raging for a couple of weeks by then. So I had to postpone it and use stock photo I had to readjust the whole time like what my expectation this product I wanted to put out versus what I was able to get out versus what I wanted and it was just like this cool thing I and why I created a pseudonym is mainly to create a new business so I have another business another LLC that's a publishing business but also like I felt like if people outside of my inner circle and people that listen to take the time to listen to Jolene type podcast that talk about Kayleen, Um, I don't really want all the book fans to necessarily know that I'm a lawyer too. I don't (laughs) care. It's it's not like a, a shame thing. It's just more of like identity thing and a corporate thing, right? Like keeping my businesses separate and keeping some part of Kayleen sort of mysterious to readers. And also, truthfully, I didn't know if anyone would like the book. So I threw it out there. It started getting really great reviews and it started charting in Amazon, and it's hit number one. It's really the hub of what I'm going to be doing from now until whenever I don't want to do it anymore. But it's now there. Are, the fourth full-length book is coming out in September. I have a little novella that sort of gives you a little window into the pre-world of Endless um, but it's really all interconnected, what are called interconnected standalones, which you can kind of enter in at every point and you won't know too much about what happens in everybody else's book. But generally the romance books of contemporary romance now, each book follows a couple and then there's their worlds collide. So in this case, the band, so you follow each band member's journey to their finding their love and how their love story is. And they all have different paths but they all are in this band and none of it's based on anybody or yeah, anything. But there's diff- No, but there's, there's little bits of everything. There's little bits of me, like in, in the book that's coming out um, there, I named the cat Cecil. I had a cat named Cecil for many years. So there's little things like that, that I'll drop in to different books, in different ways. Book three is a book called fearless. It's about a rogue Irish bass player. My husband's Irish. So it's really sort of, he's not the character at all, but I get to sort of pay, I guess, homage to my in-laws in Northern <laughs> Ireland. And, you know, but it's like, so there's little pieces that I've taken from my life that are sprinkled throughout. But the goal is to create like a general world and jumping off points to create new series and new books where this is
0: sort of the hub. So that's my, my plan. So you've created a whole world within a world that yeah. was, sort of touches on some of the truths in your life and the people yeah. like, cause I've, I was going to shows and saw Chris Cornell and Lane and I get named 50, 60 other very attractive uh, musicians um, in our scene, so there's, there's got to touch on some of them. There's, you know, like at least maybe they're how they were, how they acted or their personalities. Is there any of that in there that you, from not even the famous ones necessarily, but you were around so many people. Do you think some of that dips in as well? Not just.
3: Yeah. And, and from a psychological standpoint, I talk a lot about how being away and being on the road and the mental strain, of being away from your friends and family. And, and like, as everyone knows, when you go on vacation for two weeks, you come back and in your mind, everybody is exactly where they were when you left on vacation, right? But okay. they've also lived for two weeks too. Now imagine multiplying that by months and then sometimes tours get extended or, you know, or different things. And in, in the case of the band that I write about, this fictitious band called Less Than Zero, you know, they're what the guitar player's father was a very famous guitar player in the 90s, and he struggled with drug addiction. So that might touch on some of the stories that you've heard of some of our fallen 90s rock brethren, you know. But it's not about them. But I also like to put a little bit of social purpose in every book. So the first book, Endless, it's about a lead singer who um is this geeky, shy kid whose mother is a Abusive, And he he grows up and doesn't really have anyone. And so this guitar player and the dad, the the addict, become like his pseudo family. And he meets this girl and they fall in love and they get torn apart. And then how do they get back to each other? Because it really was their true love. But nobody could believe that at such a young age, they would have that. And then once you're back together, all these hurts that happen. So it goes a lot deeper than just some sort of fluffy love story. And there's there's lots of good smutty steamy scenes too because that's part of what in the genre you have to do to compete in the genre. Um, but really, on the social purpose, in that is about education and music education in schools. So it's all about how he wants to give back because this this father figure gave to him. So he wants to create music pro- a foundation that will allow music programs to exist in schools all across the United States. So that's the social purpose there. In the second book, it's about therapy and horse therapy and how this the the woman in that, she loves horse rescue. It's animal rescue. It starts up and it goes into more so much more about how working with horses can be very therapeutic. And in the third book, it's a kind of a Me Too story where the bass player has this whole history of alcohol abuse in his family. There's an accident and how he has to take over, but his girl in the book is an actress and she's gone through the whole Hollywood system. And I based a lot of that on this great website called crazy days and nights, which has all these blind items and all and revealed Harvey Weinstein years before we all knew, but all this stuff that goes on and she, her thing is she takes down Hollywood. She exposes this whole ring. So she's a strong girl. And then book coming up now, is called Timeless. That will be out in September. And it's really, really deep exploring families and how your family guides your decisions. And maybe you make decisions to do better than what you perceive your parents did for you, but maybe you do something different that is equally damaging or better. You know, you don't know. So it's a lot of exploration of family dynamics. So it's not just rocks. It's not just romance. I really like to be a little deeper than that
0: yeah then you have to be like okay now we're gonna put in the we're gonna put in the eroticism and then there's
3: lots of good lots
0: of good steaming good scenes well i was (laughs) gonna say you also are set up i mean the netflix series has got to be coming you are you like to do the rights you are the author this is a this is a world you're creating um i i've heard this is a much better plot than about half of every netflix show i ever have seen previewed Um, Do you ever think about that? Like when you're writing, like this could be a visual, this could be a series. Is that anywhere? in? Of course, when you see Bridgerton and you
3: see that show Sex, Love, that just got, you know, there's a lot of shows that are getting option. There's a couple authors that I know that are in process or have had their books option. You know, I represent authors too. I do have a lot of connections in the world. What I wanted to do with Kayleen though is, I want to make sure I build out Kayleen holistically. So social media is a big thing. Like, I'm, you know, Kayleen's on TikTok and all these different ways to get organic readers because I don't want to, I could call people and say, hey, will you give me a shot and can I pitch this? But I want it to be real, you know? I want it to be like, you know, people, there's a demand for it because ultimately as a media lawyer, as a media business person, I want there to be a demand for it. Right. Like, right. like it's got to be made. And so I'm cre- I'm really working hard on creating that demand. It's, it's just been like this whole new world that's opened up. And now there's all these author friends I'm friends with. There are all these women, many, most of them, women, I would should say who are business owners, right? They're creative business owners. So it really has come full circle. And I'm actually working with a, um, one of the younger lawyers on my team, to come up with a package that we could offer so like when they figure out that i'm a lawyer too that kayleen's jolene in this in that world that you know we can come up with some sort of inexpensive way to allow them to have a couple of tools or legal tools that they need for their journey whether it's a privacy policy for their website or a, a release form or something you know things that authors might need so it's it's actually a business development
0: thing too. It's amazing how many worlds just talking to you for this hour of we've jumped into. (laughs) It's it's really inspiring. Like we, I love people (laughs) like you who love what they do. They do what they love. They bring people along, they empower people and they try new things and they try new creative outlets. And, um, I think people hearing that, um, are, I get inspired that I could do something else you, you know even though write I'm, some
3: romance I novels,
0: I I may not go romance now but like I have a kids book Mystery. I want to write I have a a kids book I want to desperately write and I have the whole idea and the thing that keeps stopping me is just like well I don't do that and then I remember well I wasn't a DJ I wasn't a bar owner I wasn't a podcaster I wasn't a I wasn't a father That's where
1: our core values John I know and that <laughs> thing
0: just that, so so just sitting here too and 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 hearing you dive into that and just being so like how much you've thought about this and how creative it is and how um, you want to build this character out and, and, and the messages you're getting in your books. I don't know. That inspires me a lot because I'm thinking of all the rest of your history too, that you got here from, from starting just booking shows and promoting music because you loved it.
3: I was going to say that having that creative thing back into my life makes me better at everything else because I'm, it's like the sense of purpose and happiness that, creativity gives you. And just, you know, I love what I do. I love being a lawyer. I love all my clients. I love that so much. And what I've built, I'm really proud of. And that is not changing anytime soon. I mean, because I've just I just love it. But this gives me something for me.
1: I love that. I am a strong, firm believer that um Part of people, when people like list things that they're trying to do for like health and wellness, you usually hear about like, oh, I'm on, I'm eating this food or whatever, and I, or I'm doing this kind of exercise. But for me, those things are important. But what's equally important is a creative outlet because it's how we find nourishment through self expression. And so I just love that you found that for yourself, and it does. It makes you better at everything else that you're doing.
3: I think so. I mean, it's been, it's been a great joy, and honestly just – it's something I didn't know I needed, but now I can't imagine not having it. Um,
0: it's, <laughs> it's amazing to, to hear your history and, and you have your podcast. Everyone should check out. Your books clearly are important. Plus, if people are looking for any uh, you know, lawyer help, uh, you know I'm already – I already put your name down so <laughs> I know there's plenty of people out there who need that as well and it, you know it's just inspiring to talk to you today we really appreciate it
3: well thanks for having me really I, I, it's it's just such a treat to be able to pull it all together even for myself good I
2: was <laughs>
0: Kayleen Winters, also known as Jolene Hughes. <laughs> um, just awesome. Amy, I love me, her. I, I did She's too. You know, we, we didn't get really into we talked for so long about, you know, everyone has their thing. And for some people, erotic novels, because she, she brought up, matter of fact, I don't know anything about the romantic, it doesn't necessarily do it for me. I don't know. I didn't really get into romantic novels. Have no. you
1: read it? I uh, probably roman- should novel it
0: sounds like there's something for kind of every situation so rock star eroticism right Mm -hmm. so that's your fantasy that's your thing music people rock stars whatever but there there's probably ones about chefs you know like
1: well they're multi-layered it's not just you know people dating and smut there's all kinds of stories embedded in those stories right there's
0: stories within the stories but there's Mm -hmm. a general theme that's going to draw you to it you, you're, right, you're like, sure. mm-hmm. so everyone has their, their thing. And it's awesome that that particular, you know, how I feel when people find their niche, when people like, we'll go to the, um, we'll go to the gaming coffee shop or whatever and grab a coffee. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited for everyone in there. Cause that didn't really exist when I was younger. Like there's nowhere to go game. Like my gaming friends, I wasn't a big yeah. gamer, but you found your tribe. You found your thing you're into. And I'm not saying this, I'm sure there's, some novel about that too. Don't send that to me. But my point is you find your thing. And so even when it comes to your sexuality or what turns you on, what makes you feel good, it's going to be different for everybody. And there's been such a, you know, we talk about career, finding your career earlier and you get older and you kind of figure well, that goes for your sexuality, for what you're into, what gets you off. That takes time too, Here, at least here in America, right?
1: Yeah. And you know, um, it's funny because you know, I have this email list and I was talking about pleasure and I was basically telling people to go masturbate and I had all these people unsubscribe. Oh, really? Yeah. And I and I was like, wow, hmm. I guess they came here for some health tips. You know? That's a good <laughs> like, health tip to Eat my... your vegetables and like I'll I eat don't... my
0: vegetables and masturbate. The, I, not the, at the same time. But
1: we don't we have such a shame cloud around sex in this culture. Right. And I don't care if people um, unsubscribe. I do want them to opt out if that doesn't make them comfortable. But I look at masturbation and sex and finding your true sexuality as part of health. And it's not just physical, it's mental and it's spiritual health. That if you can figure that out about yourself and you figure out what pleasures you... And sometimes yeah, you got to start with yourself before you bring in the partner. You know, you got to know you got to know your body, you got to know what you like. And yeah. And then and then it can only increase when you bring a partner in.
0: Well, clearly your thing was 1940s uh, smut sent to you at work. <laughs>
1: enjoyed talking with Jolene so much on this podcast.
0: Yeah, I have a new lawyer. I'll tell you that right now.
1: Oh, yeah. If I need a
0: lawyer, I'm calling her.
1: I'm going to get into some romance novels, I think. I know. Well, she's sending us some. She's sending.
0: I'm really excited
1: about that. Yeah, I know. I'm going to burn through them. It's
0: going to be my new thing. Um, And I hope that someday we see a Netflix series around these. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Dude, some of the stuff on Netflix, right? if you could do Bridgerton, you know you, you know, you can you can, do this. Like I love Bridgerton because I liked how they changed the narrative of just white people back in the day. You know what I mean? It just like had this cool narrative. But like the romance stuff, I got into that. Not gonna lie to you. The romantic part of it, Amy. I fell for you Bridgerton. You got into
1: Bridgerton. Yeah, yeah, I
0: was like, oh, I like this because they're switching, you know, just the, just the way you look at race and history. Uh, and it was awesome and some great leading actors and actresses. And then I'm like, Okay. I kind of like it.
1: You kind of like the smut.
0: Yeah. So maybe the books will work for me. If not, I can, well, you know,
1: I like the smut.
0: I know you love the smut. I mean, especially that <laughs> eggplant emoji, which I'm going to be sending you a lot this week. Uh, so we want to thank Jolene. She rules. We also want to thank Michael Lerner of telekinesis, not just for the great jingle, but being the artists that we showcase throughout this podcast today and the best place to go for telekinesis music and really for most bands music if you want to support them in a big way is their Bandcamp page you can go to telekinesis.bandcamp.com to find more music from telekinesis and appreciate him being a- involved with this uh, in this first season of podcasting and we want to thank our friends over at ruinous media as always i think that's about everything you can find us at the doctor and the DJ.com.
1: and This is a wrap for season one, y'all.
0: Is that it? That's it? Did we do it?
1: We did it. Are there people
0: listening? It's very exciting.
1: 12 (laughs) full length episodes.
0: We've had thousands of people listening.
1: And 12 little mini episodes, the Dr. B-sides and the um, DJ Prescription. Yeah. Follow us on, uh,
0: we mostly communicate through our Instagram page. Yeah. So follow us at the doctor and the DJ. You can send us direct messages. We check those all the time. You'll find our other Instagram accounts through there as well. Feel free to follow all of those. But if you have messages you want to send us, we'd love to hear from you. We hope to get more interactive when we come back and get more people involved in this podcast as well we love talking to people so if you want to send us uh, your favorite mark twain quote or uh, your favorite smut novel whatever it might be just send us a direct message and uh, we're going to take a little break regroup uh, ask some more friends to come talk to us for future podcasts and please uh, tell everyone you know about this podcast during our our break so they download this bad boy
1: That's right. And uh, season two, I believe we're on the schedule, the end of September. Sweet.
0: Look forward to it. And uh, Amy, thanks for uh, for being a hell of a co-host.
1: Oh, yeah. You too. We're
0: going to leave you with one more from Telekinesis, and uh, this is called Cut the Quick.